We are joined on the phone by Carolyn Sugate from the Organic and Renewables uh, Regenerative, sorry, Investment Cooperative. Are you there, Carolyn? I am, Scotty. How are you? Excellent. It's great to hear you. Um, I love your song choice. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we do our best. We do our best. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ori Co-op is the uh, the short name for for Ori for the Organic and Regenerative Investment Cooperative. Um, when did this idea come about, the Ori Co-op? Well, I think it, uh, you know, it's had a long kind of immersion in the sense of, you know, I come from a farming background. So I've got, you know, my family, I've got a farm down in Gippsland in southern Victoria. And I used to work in large-scale uh, asset acquisition with uh, some big super funds. So I used to help put together farmland acquisitions for the big super funds. And I think, um, you know, for me, the security and longevity of farms and obviously the risk for um, the future next generation of farmers was always in my mind. So I think I've spent 10 years sort of exploring models um, that can be a pathway towards family farms staying family-owned, um, but not necessarily managed by the successing um, family, as in the, the children of the original owners. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it comes from a very personal perspective for me, um, but obviously it's taken us a long time to navigate a financial uh, mechanism to keep the integrity of the farm as well as obviously be compliant within the financial regulatory system, which in Australia is very difficult. Yeah, right. So I always like to start with basics on this show. So <laughs> what, is, what is farming? Well, I mean, for me, there's different types of farming. I think there's three different categories. I've actually just left an incredible, incredible friend of mine from Timbara Farms, and they um, they supply restaurants, they farm on a side of a, a very steep terrace and, um, you know, have an incredible, uh, you know, organic farm, you know, that is feeding six restaurants and I think 50 families, you know, on two acres. So, you know, that people say that, you know, you can't farm under 100 acres and, you know, we have a lot of farmers that I know personally that are farming on one to one to 10 acres, both working full time, employing people, you know, just doing an awesome job at, you know, looking after land really well. You know, and then I live in northeast Victoria where we run a 100-acre organic farm ourselves and 100 acres in our area is like a back paddock, a backyard. It's a very <laughs> small farm in our area. And then, you know, we've got station holders that own thousands of acres. So, you know, for me, a farmer is a land steward, you know, someone that looks after the land. You know, I think our Indigenous people, you know, looked after it, you know, well and, you know, we should be doing the same. I think, unfortunately, there's other categories of farmers um, that I probably won't refer to very much in this show, but you know, who it's more industrial or it's in more <clears throat> more, more a corporate um, extractive sense of agriculture, which is very much commodity based, which is very export driven and you know very subject to you know cheap food and world markets, and that's probably not the you know type of farming that we're really attracted to. Um, although obviously there's a lot of people that are involved in that, um, particularly in Australia because of our large land masses. Yeah, right. So it's really quite a uh, quite an amazingly varied thing. And and where does this farming happen? What sort of farming? Oh, all of it. Well, I mean, I guess there's you know there's fundamentally good areas. Um, I come from Kipsan, where they have high rainfall country. I think because of 
you know, our changing climate, even the drought the last year, um, it's interesting how land prices have reflected rainfall. You know, so I think rainfall is really a key driver as to good agricultural land. You know, you can have the best soil in the world, but if you don't have any moisture on it, it doesn't grow very much. <laughs> so, you know, Gippsland is a very good area. I live up in northeastern of Victoria. We got three millimetres of rain last week. People an hour north and south of us got 40 mils, you know. So, you know, I think that the moisture is what is, you know, really driving where, land, you know, food will be grown in the next kind of 10 to 20 years. <laughs> You know, I just leave in the Yarra Valley where, you know, massive, just ridiculously good soil, good rainfall, um, you know, high-value land, but obviously really fertile. Um, you know, the Northern Rivers, I think, is a, you know, prime spot, you know, again, high-value, but really fertile. Um, you know, there's, I guess there's probably, you know, 20 really good farming areas across Australia. And then there's other areas which are more marginal of nature, but, you know, they're still good farming areas. They still can grow crops. They can still, you know, do other sorts of farming. Um, and that's the thing. Farming can be intensive vegetables or it can be, you know, crops or, you know, I've got family who've got farm up at Bell Reynolds and, you know, they run 10 sheep to, a, well, sorry, one sheep to 10 acres, <laughs> you know. So it's deemed as farmland, but obviously it's not super high productive land. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting, isn't it? I, I guess you're doing all right if you're getting out more energy than you're putting in, really. Would that make sense with farming as well? Yeah, and I think the way that um, farming is, is changing and needs to change is that farming, you know, before the industrial era, farming was very much about what you grew on your own land was what was sustainable within that land area. And then with the industrial system, what happened was you know, we, we created fertilisers and we created all these great products um, and we told the farmers that they could increase their productivity and they could grow three times more whatever they were growing if they used these products. And so now I think we're actually returning a little bit to that original era of actually creating a sustainable farming system that is not input-based. You know, I think input-based um, farming you know, given climate change, given given the limitation of fossil fuels, actually has an end life. And I think a lot of farmers, even, you know, farmers that have been involved in industrial farming or conventional farming, you know, they're looking at uh, urea and they're looking at, you know, NPK fertilisers and thinking if we run out of phosphorus um, or we run out of fossil fuels, um, how are we actually going to grow crops? Um, so I think that that's a really good awakening and um, we're really interested in helping farmers to just open their thoughts to, you know, maybe just reducing their dependency on the imports and making their farms a little bit more resilient. And that's financially resilient as well, because the thing about a limited product is your price goes up. And so with fossil fuels or with urea, for example, if you look at the increase in price over time, it's exponentially increased in price, but it's actually not increasing what is growing to the same proportion. Yeah, um, so, so farmers' liabilities, yeah, farmers' liabilities um, is really affected by that. Yeah, so I guess with the uh, with the whole fossil fuel inputs thing, how much fossil fuel goes into conventional farming? Is it actually a significant amount, or? Uh, I'd have to I have to check my notes. I'm I'm not sure, but there's quite a significant amount. So, you know, fertilisers obviously are a byproduct of fossil fuels. You know, urea, and 
fuel yeah. and yeah yeah and, now, you know they're saying if we don't have phosphorus beyond well i mean they said 10 years ago five years ago so um yeah i, I think that we um you know need to be looking at it and saying how do we go grow crops without a high value n you know mm. which is obviously derived from um you know fully fueling systems and organic farmers are demonstrating that we absolutely can we're not getting the same yield but then our cost of production is a lot less as well yeah so, that's right so i think um the, the the guy from the Land Institute over in the states, Wes Jackson, he 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 points out that the the fossil fuels basically replaced the the human energy that was putting in and the, and the jobs that went with that input yeah. of energy from humans, and um, yeah, it just replaced them basically. Um, so instead of paying people, you're now paying for the the fossil energy to go in and, and yeah. do the work. Um, and he, he reckons to get it back, you've got to increase your eyes to acres ratio. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'd like to just turn the clock back a little bit. So farming, I reckon a good good definition of farming is, is, is farming is our means of getting our third most essential need, which is food. And, um, yeah, yeah, what is food? I mean, it's fairly fundamental in all this. Farming's all about food. So what's food? Well, I think it's an interesting question. I, I live in regional Victoria and there's a lot of questions at the moment about the health of regional areas and their access to healthy food. And, you know, it's, it's interesting if you go to Mansfield on a busy long weekend, you know, in the ski season or the middle of summer and, you know, you have a hundred to 200,000 visitors that come through the area and yet our farmers in the area don't actually supply food into that local area. You know, they just really grow commodity crops or, or commodity livestock, you know, into Coles and Woolworths. You know, and so I'm really interested in the whole conversation about local healthy food and what that looks like and also the affordability side of it. Um, you know, I've got a lot of farming friends in our area who are conventional farmers and, you know, all different sorts of farmers and they, um, you know, don't eat their own lamb. They don't eat their own beef um, and I just find it extraordinary because food actually started, farmers were the, the kings in the areas because they had the healthiest food of anyone in the community and yet we seem to have lost that. Our farmers are not growing food for their families, they're growing food for the, you know, large-scale, um, you know, supermarkets or export, um, and then they're going to the supermarket and buying, you know, this conventional product. Yeah. Um, that's kind of bizarre. How do you, do you have any ideas on how that transformation came about? Because, yeah, I agree, it is really bizarre. What happened? Well, my parents were, my grandfather was uh, what I call a pre-industrial farmer. So, you know, he had five enterprises. He do, he had a dairy, he grew pigs, he grew potatoes. Um, you know, like I guess what you'd say is an old, very old-fashioned farmer. And, um, you know, when the dairy industry was regulated, they basically prevented farmers from having pigs. So you can't have a dairy and pigs at the same time, according to the dairy laws. And so they're kind of, you know, essentially forced the farmers to become, you know, singular focused. And I think, you know, so farmers sort of only grew milk or only produce milk or they only produce livestock. And so it's kind of only one of their, you know, needs rather than having a multiple enterprise, you know, diverse um, farm and or business. And so, 
that's what we're trying to change. Like with Oricot, we're certainly looking at farms that are well diversified, you know, have multiple enterprises, even a dairy farm. You know, a dairy farm should be able to have, you know, a horticulture section um, in, and, you know, have, another, you know, some other enterprise as well. So that if something happens with the dairy, for whatever reason, they've actually got fallback crops or they've got fallback other opportunities. Mm. Um, but I think that, that that's what sort of changed. And, and then farmers just, you know, they, they too got caught up in the whole industrial movement of you go to the supermarket to buy your food, you know, rather than going to your local farmer that grew five different things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to come at food from a from a slightly different angle, and and we're going to start right at the beginning and do a, a very quick time lapse, and and just come <laughs> forward to when the food gets on your plate. So I'm going to start right at the beginning. So you've got some some fresh rock, you've got <laughs> some rock that might have just come out of the volcano a few hundred years ago or something, and you've got fungus which is colonized from somewhere and that's actually eating the rock itself and making it available to anything else maybe some seeds blow in and they start eating what the fungus has left behind and, and what happens then what what makes a, a nice healthy soil in in natural natural sort of conditions well i mean i think you know the whole breaking down you know the whole biological side that you see under the soil you know i think um, that's the other part that we've forgotten about is um, how many farmers dig a hole in the ground and check, you know, check what is happening under the soil. So, yeah, I think a healthy food is grown through a healthy ecological system underneath the soil, um, not necessarily from a chemically-based, um, you know, input-based uh, side of things. Mm. Um, you know, there's some really good studies happening about, you know, the quality and, de- and nutrient-dense food um, that's grown in those ecologically-rich soils um, and how much healthier that is. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done in that area, but, um, you know, that's a start at least. Yeah, and what would you expect to find in, in a, a healthy handful of soil if you if you dug it up and had a good look, maybe, maybe well, with I microscope? That, yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think everyone should, you know, dig up their garden, not, not their whole garden, but just dig, a, you know, a foot square and basically have a look at it. And, you know, what you should see is lots of healthy bugs, you should see earthworms. You know, if you count the number of earthworms, um, you know, over a given period, what we do on our farm is we basically every year uh, try to do it at a similar time every year after some good rain, uh, when the rains arrive, um, and, and actually count the number of bugs. Um, look at how deep the roots go down. So how deep do the roots go down? Three centimetres or does it go down 20 centimetres? Um, and then look at the actual ecological layers so look at the different colours of the earth. So you might have a clay layer and then you might have, um, you know, a soil layer or you might have a silt layer and actually look at how that changes over time. So as you build up your veggie garden with compost and, you know, kitchen scraps and all the good things that you hopefully put in your veggie garden to, to improve it over time, even things like calcium, which can come from eggshells or lime or anything like that, you actually can see that the change over time of, the colour changes, the, the structure changes. When we first moved to our farm, we had really sodic soil, and um, it was, re- which means that um, it repels water really badly. And over time, we've basically changed it so that now it actually retains a lot more moisture. So when we get rain, it actually is much more effective rain. Um, but, you know, soil where we are is very difficult to change quickly because of our lack of moisture. Um, so we kind of have a hard battle on our hands to make that 
you know, to make that work. But yeah, I think if everyone just dug a hole, you can actually then go, oh, this is our starting point. This is what we're working with. Mm-hmm. And besides the life, what, what else goes into the soil when it's regenerating? Um, I'm not a soil um, expert. Uh, I, was, so. <laughs> I was thinking carbon. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's some really interesting studies happening. I'm actually, I'm sorry, I'm driving and I am going through a little bit of a funny spot. So I'm hoping it's going to hold through here. But, um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, with uh, biochar. So there's some really interesting studies happening with biochar, which is essentially burnt wood, burnt and treated wood. And, you know, basically activating the carbon in the soil. Um, so carbon can come from wood chips. It can come from, uh, you know, ash. Um, we use a lot of ash on our property to try and get it to, you know, to, to change. So, yeah, and, and obviously every everything you grow depends on carbon. You know, it's like an essential. It's a bit like nitrogen, but even, you know, at a much higher level. Yeah, yeah, we're all carbon-based life forms, eh? Yeah. So, so most of the carbon, I guess, in in plants in particular, is sort of comes out of the air, doesn't it? Yeah. So you get photosynthesis, and the sun's rays come down, and that mingles with the tiny little bit of stuff that the plants got out of the soil through its roots, and and carbon is produced from the carbon dioxide in the air. And I always love to think that everything you look around at is made of air. <laughs> it's very bizarre. Yeah, and I think do it. You know, a lot of the conversations about carbon happening at the moment are talking about trees and forests and everything that's kind of hanging above the ground. That what, you know, it's only just starting to be talked about is the fact that our soils are a massive carbon sink, you know, that can actually store, you know, as much if not more carbon um, in the ground than the forest can. Um, And they also can be changed much quicker than a forest can be. Hmm. Now, I... I guess that sort of could be significant when you're looking at uh, looking at climate change and the drawdown of the carbon in the atmosphere. What sort of scale is farming in Australia? I mean, is it like does it? How much of the land mass does it take up? Oh, don't ask me questions like that. Um, <laughs> I know that um, I can probably work from the bottom upwards. I know that the amount of certified organic land in Australia is about thirty nine million hectares. And I think that the certified organic amount of certified organic land is only ten percent of the actual arable land. So I think it must be what's that three hundred and ninety million hectares? Mm. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe someone can Google that for me. But um, uh-huh. yeah, I think I think it's about yeah about four hundred million hectares. I think, but yeah, you'd have to check that. So that's really significant. <laughs> and I've heard that the numbers around the world are that farming is in fact the the biggest. Um, the biggest area of the world's land surface is is farming. It's not uh, it's not forests and it's not national parks or all of them put together. It, it's it's actually forest ah, actually farming. So that sort of are you there still? I am. Yeah. Excellent. I That's can good. Hear me. Yep. Good. I'm just just coming up the slide. Sorry, sorry. No, that's good. That's good. But yeah, the point I was making there was that um, farming is the biggest use of land in the world. So that makes a change in farming to, to soil-based agriculture an amazing form of geoengineering. Yeah. yeah. And that's just why it's so critical that farmers 
you know, just review what they've been doing for the last 50 years. You know, not say, oh, we're going to turn the tap off, but just say, how could we make our farming system more biologically friendly? You know, and that can be, you know, tilling or, you know, how much they're putting in things that are damaging the biology. You know, the thing about a healthy biological soil underneath the surface is it actually can work for you. So it actually can reduce your input costs if you get it to work well. You know, rather than having to artificially feed it, you can actually stimulate it to make it, you know, work for you to help grow healthy crops. Mm. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's a really exciting time to be in agriculture. You know, I feel really excited about the farmers we're working with that are, you know, just opening their minds and thinking about more biological ways of, of doing what they what they have been doing for a long time. I mean, farmers have always been pioneers. And I think at the moment we absolutely need farmer pioneers, but we need mavericks and, you know, really brave farmers that are willing to tackle what is a really complex problem. You know, we've got farmers that are, have put in entire crops this year that have got no crop whatsoever. You know, and you just imagine telling a person in Sydney they're going to go to work for a month and at the end of the month they might or might not get paid. Yeah, and they've put in heaps of money to do it. That's right. They've borrowed money to, you know, to buy the seed, to pay the contractors. Um, you know, I spoke to an organic farmer the other day. They'd planted 900 hectares. Like, that's a massive amount of land and they didn't get a crop. Mm. You know, so there's, you know, there's a massive shortage of organic grains across all of Australia right now. Um, yeah. Now, we're going to get to farmers fairly soon, but I just want to stick with soil and finish off that as a, <laughs> as a topic. Um, so really... The, the carbon in soil and the, and the carbon in us as living beings is really carbon is a very good currency for energy. And, and I guess putting that much carbon back into the soil makes it like a, a, a battery for life, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it can be, yeah. Yeah, and that's why you don't need to put the inputs of energy in because it's already there in the soil. It's been put there by all the life. That's remarkable. Nature's done it all for us. <laughs> now, from healthy soil, how does healthy soil affect our food? Well, I think, like I said before, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of trials happening at the moment about nutrient, the nutrient density of food. And, you know, the, the, they're, they're saying that the amount of food we need to eat in this era versus, you know, 30 years ago, we need to eat a lot more vegetables to get the same amount of nutrients than we did you know, three, 30 to 40 years ago. Um, and I think that the questions have to be asked as to why that is. You know, I think when we um, are growing crops that are very input-based and, you know, sort of artificially fed in a way, um, it means that they're growing very fast because they need yields, you know, fast. And it makes that food less uh, nutrient-dense than the more slower-grown varieties or more slower-grown food um, that, you know, you may not need to eat as much as we are eating. Mm, and that would probably be a good thing in a society where obesity is ever on the increase. Yeah, and and that's what they're saying, is we've actually supplemented the volumes that we should be eating with, you know, sugar and processed foods, um, you know, and, and, you know, there's obviously a, a very severe issue when you look, I heard on the radio the other day that one in four children under 15 are obese, you know, obese or overweight. And I just think, you know, that's like one child in almost every second family. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've got three children myself and I'm passionate about my kids, um, 
you know, being healthy eaters and understanding what healthy eating looks like. You know, but it's really difficult when they go to school and they're surrounded by, not surrounded, but obviously they have a lot of, um, you know, children around them that don't have the same understanding of, of what healthy food looks like. Um, and, you know, there's a really interesting thing on the ABC the other day. They took, I think, 20 photos of different school lunches. Um, it's actually a really interesting study and they looked at different areas. So there's a, one in the Bayside and one in Footscray and they basically went to school lunches and took photos of the kids' lunchboxes. And they were trying to work out what makes a, a healthy family with a healthy lunch over an unhealthy one. You know, is it is it money or is it time or um, is it education? And so they were trying to work out the parameters and they didn't actually, it wasn't actually conclusive um, because obviously in Footscray, um, where it's low socioeconomic, um, a more lower socioeconomic area, um, you know, the kids seem to have more packaged food. But then they talked about whether it's because mum and dad are both working and leave early as factory workers rather than in the Bayside where mum and dad might start work at nine and um, have more time to prepare a healthy lunch. Um, but yeah, you know, I think we're bringing up kids in an era that there's a lot of those pressures, you know, right very close to them. Mm-hmm. And how does food sort of, how does food affect our, our culture? I mean, it's sort of... A little bit connected there, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, you know, it's interesting how we used to stop and breathe and eat. You know, family, like I come from a farming family, obviously, and, you know, after milking at night, you sit down and enjoy a meal together and, you know, you don't have a television on and you sit and eat and breathe. And it's interesting, again, with my family, you know, with our children, we've always had dinner together. And, you know, obviously, you know, kids might have activities or whatever. We try and very much have a family meal together. And it's amazing how many families don't do that, you know. And so we have children come to our house and they go, oh, you guys eat like this. Like, is this like a special dinner? Because they're so used (laughs) to everyone just sitting down watching television, scoffing their next meal. So there's actually a real lack of appreciation of that time to prepare the meal and time to actually go, how was your day? And, you know, how is life? And I think that's a really important part of society to actually sit together and make food together and eat. Mm, That's an interesting distinction. I guess you've got the the slow food movement, which is about the... uh the, the farming of food in, in what you were saying, maybe a slower variety and taking more care and making it better that way. But, uh, yeah, that, you, you've just pointed out fast eating there as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, yeah, I do think, you know, just, we're just a fast food society. I'm not, if, you saw, if you saw this study that um, McDonald's has just done, on, and obviously I'm not a McDonald's fan, but um, the, this study that McDonald's have just done on their patronage and their patronage from 2.30 to 5 o'clock is exponentially higher in the last 20 years because of um, after-school activity. So mum and dad pick up little Johnny from school, go through the drive-thru, <clears throat> grab an after-school snack, and then go and play sport. And I was, and then the other one was the tradies. I was talking about the number of tradies. My husband's an arborist. And, um, you know, we often have these conversations about, you know, what do tradies eat at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? You know, they stop and they eat McDonald's, you know, and I'm just like, you know, in the industrial food time, you know, families sat down and, and 
had a cup of tea together or had afternoon tea and it was a healthy, um, you know, I mean, my nana used to make beautiful scones and all those sort of things, but um, it wasn't fast food, it wasn't processed food. And I think our whole time for society is creating just this terrible situation with food where we just don't even value it. You know, people don't even value the time that it takes to make food and prepare food. Um, and, it, and it does take a very dedicated family to not just grow your own food, but actually make your own food. You know, we cook, obviously we run an organic farm, and so we cook a lot of slow-cooked food. And so I put, you know, um, a, a lamb shank or whatever on at lunchtime, and by dinner time there's a beautiful meal waiting, you know, usually on the top of our wood stove or something. Um but it takes someone to be at home at lunchtime to actually be able to do that. Um, if I was, you know, working in an office in the city or whatever, I, I wouldn't have that blessing. I wouldn't have that opportunity. No, nah, it's hard to take the oven with you on the train. It is, it is. You know, and that's the whole time for society that then, you know, throws a meal together or worse still, you know, buys Uber Eats. I had to just explain to this little boy that I was with this morning about what Uber Eats actually is because he's so funny. His mum and dad run an organic farm and... You know, wouldn't even imagine using something like Uber Eats. But, you know, I have friends and family that use it multiple times a week, you know, just to order in a meal, you know, like that. Yeah, right. What What, what is that? I don't know about it either. I don't know about Uber Eats. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so Uber Eats is a, um, it's a, ter- a terrible business model. But, um, well, it is actually a very successful business model, but it's just not good for the, the restaurateurs. So basically you go online and you order, just say, a pizza, for example, um, and the, the taxi man who works for Uber, he picks up the, um, you know, he picks up the pizza and then he delivers it to you. And uh. in, in the process, he charges you $5 delivery and then he charges the pizza owner 30% of the cost of the pizza. And so you get the pizza for, say, $20, and it costs you $5 delivery, but the pizza only only gets, you know, uh, 70% of that value because he pays 30% to the Uber driver mm-hmm. or to the Uber company, obviously. So they were just talking about it the other day about how, you know, how much it affects restaurant owners because restaurant owners are actually getting smaller eating in areas because they're having more Uber Eats customers. But what they're having to do is obviously create a product for... 30% less of the price. Yeah, wow. Uber does it again, eh? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so food, I mean, who needs food? Who needs food? Uh, everyone? Everyone? and uh, Just people? Well... Oh, it's a silly question, really. <laughs> but, you know... I'm just pointing out that absolutely everything needs food. It's, it's it's omnipresent in life, isn't it? Even the simplest bacteria. So this is really survival business, isn't it? It's food is one of the core things that we totally really need. Well, I think that's the thing about, you know, farmers. That's why I, whenever I go somewhere, I always say, you know, farmers are the champions. They are the ones that can make us an awesome country or make us a really poor country. You know, I've got a daughter from Ethiopia and, you know, if you look at Ethiopian farmers, you know, they value their farmers. They hold them up in high regard. They, um, you know, they they treat them well. They don't always treat them well, but, you know, they're generally um, seen as the, the fundamental basis of their society. And I think we've forgotten about that. You know, if you look at the dairy industry at the moment, more than all the dairy farmers that are leaving the industry, 
they don't feel valued. You know, they're not being paid properly. Um, you know, they're not even covering their cost of production in some, you know, in some cases. And I think we have to really wonder about that because, yeah, food should be a fundamental right. You know, it should be, um, you know, for it to be accessible, for it to be affordable, for people to be able to eat healthy food. Um, you know, I hate the fact that junk food is cheaper than um, eating healthy food. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, the Hungry Jack's $1 burgers and you just go, this is terrible. What are we doing with food to make it um, that junk food and, and stuff that's poisoning our kids' bodies um, is what they can buy with their $5 pocket money or $10 pocket money? Yeah, I always find it weird that you get your basic food, which is healthy, and then you muck around with it, and you muck around with it more, and then you, you do all these amazing processes to it, and then somehow, after all that work, it's cheaper. What? Yeah. I don't yeah, understand yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, well, I think it's because they know it's like sugar. You know, why is things that are sweet so cheap? You know, because I think we've subsidised sugar to basically feed an industry that we know is causing diabetes. And so it's kind of all interrelated, really. Um, I think if we just took, if we just put a sugar tax on food, on obviously, you know, things like soft drinks, for example, um, you know, we, we would back it off. It's been proven with cigarettes. Um, and I just, I, I, I find it very hard that it's so political that they won't, they won't go near a sugar tax. Um, and I just think with families and obesity out of control, um, if you look at the cost of diabetes in Australia, a sugar tax would do some way to contribute to that. Hmm. Hmm. Now, you've, you've pointed out a number of times that, that, that there's a few different scales of farming. There's sort of the family farm and then there's the, the, the corporate farm and the rest of the corporate food world. What, what's the difference in the impacts that, uh, that those two make on, on how we eat our food? Well, I think, you know, there's large-scale family farms. So I want to say there's some, you know, many families in Australia that are running large-scale farms that are doing an awesome job. So, you know, I'm not at all saying that large-scale farmers are not great not great farmers. It's just that I think that there's different types of ownership structures. So, you know, my, my personal definition of like a corporate farm is where, you know, you've got a corporate entity that owns the farm and the workers on the farm are employees. They're not business owners. So I think it's important to have that sort of differentiation. You know, so if you've got a, a family farm, you know, that is, uh, you know, they're, they're managing the business and they're actually, you know, um, part owners in the business, then they're actually motivated by helping the business to be the best it can be rather than just being an employee. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess it really depends on what the motivation for the farm is. Is it to create the healthiest product or is it to create the most product or is it to create, um, you know, a very bulk product? So I think... Mm, or is it, it just it, to create profit for your shareholders? Well, that's, that's right. I mean, I've dealt with the dairy industry um, at, at a corporate level and I can tell you, you know, they have very good ways to make a balance sheet look really, really good. And um, that really concerns me because it's at the risk of the the cows themselves, the the commodity that they use to make money is the cows. And so, 
you know, they pump the cows full of grain. They have really high inputs. Um, they use a lot of fertiliser to try and grow as much feed as they possibly can. Um, and then, you know, some of them sell off their, you know, their herd or, or a good part of their herd to on live export, um, you know, to sell, you know, dairy heifers all around the world. So, you know, I, I think our dairy industry is a really good industry. I come from, you know, the dairy industry and I think, you know, small family farms of, I'm talking like 100, you know, 80 to 200 cows. That's what I'm sort of talking about from a small-scale dairy farm. Um, you know, some of the – there's some fantastic examples like Gippsland, um, Jersey, uh, Schultz Organic Dairy. Um, there's one up in Queensland called Mangali Dairy. You know, what they're doing is they're actually selling – processing a product. They're making a yogurt or they're making, you know, processing milk and they're selling it direct. And a lot of what those farmers have done is actually half their herds. So they're milking half as many cows or two-thirds less cows, or sorry, one-third less cows. Um, they're processing their products. They're getting paid a fair price. Um, and, you know, they're marketing their products. So rather than getting, you know, 27 cents from a factory that doesn't really care about you, they're selling their milk for, you know, if it's conventional, they're probably selling it for a dollar a litre, um, which means the farmer's getting 100% of that dollar. And if they're organic, then if they're selling it to a factory at the moment, they'll be getting about 80 cents, 85 cents a litre, depending on who they're supplying. But if they're selling it direct, they're getting $1.50, $2 a litre. Mm, per um, litre, that adds up pretty quick, doesn't it? it? It does. When you look at those core numbers, it's like it, it's important that farmers look at it and say, well, if I, re- if I milk less, that would be less... Um, difficult on the land, less difficult in a difficult season like we're in right now, and they're mitigating their risk, you know, like, so they've got a feed buffer and they've got, you know, more behind them, more up their sleeve if things don't go quite the way you plan, because sometimes nature doesn't do exactly what you think it should do, you know. Yeah, that's interesting, and that reminds me of, of something I've noticed over time is that wherever you go, there's an old dairy somewhere. There's Dairy Road or Dairy Flat in Canberra and there's a little old dairy out by Duntroon where they, they dug a big pit into the ground to keep the butter cold, I think. And out, <laughs> out near Braidwood, there's dairies here and there, but they're all yeah. old things that are decrepit now. And I yeah. guess they're from your grandfather's time before. Um, so really what you're, what you're pointing out there is almost a, a back-to-the-future thing, a, a smallering and a localisation. Yeah, well, we've got, a, we've got friends of ours who run a, a beautiful dairy in the Yarra Valley um, called uh, Little Yarra Dairy. And, um, you know, it's just a fantastic... They were caught up in a whole raw milk fiasco, um, you know, who were good friends of ours who were involved in that. And, you know, what they did was they basically took a deep breath and said, OK, well, if we need to process our milk, we'll do that. And so they... Out, so they were supplying 70 families of milk every week. So everybody would buy <clears throat> like five or eight litres of milk. Obviously, it was bath milk at that time. Um, and so what they did was they <clears throat> they asked all their customers to buy a year's milk in advance. And so everyone put in the year's milk in advance. And then they borrowed a little bit of money on top of that. And they built a processing facility. And so they now process, they, um, process their milk to 63 degrees. And... They now sell, I think they've got 120 families they supply. They've got 12 cows, 12 Jersey cows that walk around this beautiful river flat in the Yarra Valley. Um, you know, they have a waiting list of um, people that want to buy their milk. 
um, you know, and I just think that is the kind of farm that my grandfather had. That's exactly what he had. He obviously had pigs that would drink the milk when the cows had colostrum and it couldn't go into the vat. He, you know, feed that to the pigs and you know, he had all the different kind of enterprises. Um, but yeah, these guys are, are saying we, we can do this through 12 or 15 cows. We can supply, you know, 70 families. Yeah, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And and do you reckon that, that sort of localisation and, and, and looking after your own patch, is that going to fit in well with, with things like peak oil? Well, I think it is. I mean, I was at a, um, a, a, government, a Victorian government event last night where they're trying to redefine peri-urban and urban valued land and, you know, questioning the, the definition of viable land, product, um, productive land. And if you if you put localized food as one of those measures and say, well, if we said, you know, within a hundred kilometer radius of Melbourne, all of that food is going to be consumed generally by people who live in Melbourne, or if we talked about Canberra, if you said a hundred k, you know, around Canberra, then that land that is currently producing food for that community should be seen as highly valuable, you know, versus land that is. Um, you know, in the further reaches that's currently exporting grain to the Middle East, that's not seen as such a high priority. Um, you know, this is land that they're looking at, like, subdividing it. Some of it's the most high-value, rich, um, highly productive land, and they're wanting to create subdivisions on it, <laughs> you know. And I think it's incredibly important that we look at localisation of food and how important that is for regional communities. Hmm, yeah. Or, you know, urban community. Yeah. How many, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? What have you got? Probably an eighth of an acre blocks at the moment. How, how much of an acre do you need to supply a household, do you reckon? Or how many no, households would you get out of an acre of farmland? <laughs> That's a good question. I have to um, uh, a measure. You know, in Ethiopia, a family can feed, educate and close themselves on one acre. So if you think about an Australian family feeding, clothing and educating their children um, and they don't have public education, so the parents have to pay for education. You know, like in Australia, a dairy farmer cannot survive on 100 acres. You know, so even if you've got good soil, you would struggle to survive by milking, you know, say 60 or 80 cows, you would struggle to survive. You know, so, I mean, I guess it depends on whether you're talking about... um, you know, selling your produce or whether you're talking about being self-sufficient. Like mm. if you look at Meliodora over in um, David Holmesland's beautiful farm over in New Dalesford, I'm not sure how big it is. I think it might be 10 or 15 acres. And I think that they now provide food for two families, uh, fully self-sufficient or very close to fully self-sufficient. And then they also sell a lot of their, their produce. They've homeschooled their children. Um, you know, if you look at like a... He's written an amazing book called Retro Suburbia. And if you look at that sort of model, um, you know, that they say, you know, a, a one, one acre you can do, uh, you know, quite an amazing amount. You can grow quite an amazing amount of food in that area, depending on your climate. I mean, we are in a really difficult climate. Um, where I've just come from in the Yarra Valley, you know, incredible climate. You can grow, you know, heaps of crops there, Um yeah, yeah, I guess so. I was thinking if you could get that proportion, then you just take your suburbia and bulldoze that that proportion of the houses interspersed throughout the place and then you can grow your food there, I guess. 
Well, we're working with a really interesting organisation that's actually looking at blending agriculture with housing. Mm. And, you know, I actually think we need to look at it like that. Like in Europe, you look at it and you think you've got agriculture and then intertwined with agriculture, you have housing. But what we're doing in Australia is we're actually going, like this meeting last night was all about creating a dividing line and saying this line on the left is peri-urban and urban farming land. And on the right is the land we're going to develop, you know, the absolute bilio out of. Um, and we're going to, there's one development that's happening in the area that's 2,000 houses on 200 hectares. Like, it's just extraordinary. And all of that is farm, currently farmland. Yeah, you know? it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if we looked at a smaller footprint of housing and said, well, what if we had a housing area and then we had a growing food area and we had a water restoration area? then you're not actually having to create that same dividing line. Mm-hmm. What if all the landscapers who are running around, you see them all over the place in suburbia, what if they were all actually farmers? Yeah, there's a really interesting statistic in America um, about the amount of lawn. I can't remember the, I can't remember the number, but it's the amount of um, uh, land, the actual backyard lawn in America. I think it's the same amount of certified organic land in the whole country. <laughs> You know, just go, imagine if we all had community gardens. Like, imagine if a cluster of 10 urban houses had a, you know, 20 by 20 metre um, garden that they shared between them. You yeah. know, how effective that would be. And then they would have to, then they could have smaller yards. You know, they don't have to have these big, you know, backyards. They can all go to the garden and, you know, tend it, teach their kids how to grow food. Um, and leave near a parkland. Um, I just think that we're this great Australian dream of this tied to the lawnmower every weekend. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll take that sort of division there and, and the, the farmers are over here and they're supplying the, uh, the eaters who are all over here. How's that organised currently? You mentioned that there, there's just sort of one real market for the, the, that the farmers are selling to. Well, I think it's different. I mean, I like there's different farms, there's different markets, you know, and I think there's, I mean, in my mind, there's kind of three, maybe four different types of markets that a farmer can can capture. So there's obviously your big supermarkets, well, five actually. There's export, if you start with that. So there's export farmers that purely grow for export markets. So it might be beef or it might be grain or it might be, uh, you know, root vegetables, um, you know, non-perishable generally apart from meat, obviously. Um, you know, so there's export and then there's large-scale supermarkets, which is your Woolworths and Coles. Um, then there's your, your more local, sort of small-scale, you know, retailers. Um, and then it comes down from there, I guess, and goes to your, your farmer's markets or your direct-to-consumer market, however however that's achieved. And then there's also your CSA um, market, so your community-supported agriculture, which is you know, thriving and growing at quite a fast rate in Australia. It's been in America for quite a long time and it's only just sort of getting traction in Australia. And that's where, you know, um, our friends that I've just come from, they supply 50 families um, a veggie box, about a $100 veggie box every week. And so they grow, um, you know, a lot of vegetables, obviously, and they provide these seasonal boxes. And what that does is it gives them a base... um, uh, security of what that income would be every every week, and obviously they don't. I think they grow. I think thirty five weeks a year. I think it is. So it's not through the middle of winter, 
Um, but it gives them a base income. And then when they go to farmer's markets, if it rains or if things happen and, and they don't have as many customers as they thought, they've got that base income and it gives them that sort of security. Um, so I think that there's a lot of future in the CSAs um, and they're really good for, you know, entry-level, smaller-scale farms because you can sell your meat that way, you can sell vegetables. You can. Um, there's a really good example in Dalesford, um, Mount Alexandra Fruit Garden. They, um, they're doing, a, it's the first fruit CSA, so they've got this incredible orchard with very different types of fruits that come on for, I think it's seven months they have fruit that is coming on through that whole period. And so you basically subscribe to, say, a $30 box and you get, you know, plums one week, apricots one week, apples one week, and obviously mixtures of all of those things. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's some really good examples of that, um, which is basically breaking up the monopoly and saying, you know, you don't have to supply Woolworths or you could supply Woolworths, but you could supply other markets as well. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. So I guess this gets to the, the, the whole organisation of, of eating, doesn't it, which we've been covering quite a bit. And I guess in that, um, in that tra- what they call sort of traditional agriculture, which is actually corporate agriculture, so in, in corporate agriculture, um, what's the role of debt? In corporate agriculture, what's the role of debt? Mm, that's a hard one. What do you mean? So I guess you've, you've got the... Um, the larger farmers who are, who are supplying the big the big supermarkets and and people go to the big supermarkets to get their food, but um, yeah, do, do they usually the farmers have a big bank debt or um, or that sort of thing? Well, I think farmers have to. You know, they don't. Well, I mean, not that. Sorry, they don't have to. If you're large scale or industrial you know, input-driven, I shouldn't even say industry, if you're input-based, then you have to buy $20,000 worth of fertiliser. You know, you have to buy, um, you know, the, the grain for your dairy cows or, you know, you have to buy the input if you're running an input-driven farm. So the only way you can achieve that really is through debt. And the other thing that is linked to that, so there's the input side of the debt, and then there's also the property side of the debt, you know. So because land values have increased so much in the last 20 to 30 years particularly, um, you know, farmers are needing to have more and more land to grow more and more produce. And by doing that, they have more and more debt. Um, you know, farmers used to have sort of 30 to 40% debt. You know, now we've got farmers doing 60 to 70% debt and... You know, when you have a difficult year, like you plant a crop and it doesn't grow, you still have to service that debt. You know, so um, with with Orica, what we're trying to do is actually enable farmers to not be debt-based. So basically, you know, people investing into farms and and not having debt as a component of the land side of it. Yeah. Um, Because I think that land affordability and the value of land you know, if you look at the, how much food has increased in price versus how much more expensive the land is, they're actually not very synergetic between those two different figures. Um, no so hey, pre- Carolyn, can you just check your microphone position and maybe see if that's the otherwise? Oh, sorry. Otherwise, we might have to call you back. 
Hey. Oh, you... sorry. Is that better? Oh, that's good. Yes, yes. Excellent. Sorry. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah, so the debt that farmers are in, does that affect uh, the way they're able to, to convert over from the uh, the input-based agriculture to more soil-based agriculture? Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the, I guess, things that we try and do. So we work with farmers to help them transition. And the transition is not immediate. You know, it shouldn't be, you know, we're, we're industrial today and we're biological tomorrow. It really is you know, a one to three to five-year process, you know, because if you've been input-driven, you you know, you've got to make sure that your cash flow is, is going to get through the next couple of years. And that takes a lot of outside sort of expertise to make that work. Um, you know, I think it's um, remiss to think that if someone's done something for 20 years, they can just change easily. Um, and they need farmers need a lot of support through that. And so we're working with some specialist um, people that are really good at looking at the whole system and saying, well, what are the easiest things to change that will have the least effect? Um, and then changing those first. You know, so it, it might it may not be your fertility program, for example. You know, it may be, um, you know, your grain inputs, for example. So you might be able to reduce your grain inputs and, and grow... Uh, better crops or grow better fodder that means you can have a reduced grain amount for that year. So there's all different ways, I guess, in a farming system that you can actually look at the overall picture and say, what are the easy things to change most quickly? And then there'll be things in the third year that are really hard to do. And you might only do those in a, in a good year because that's when you can sort of have the courage to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. With different ways of organising this food chain, um, let's have a look at co-ops. Why did Ira Co-op decide to be a co-op? What's the difference? <laughs> no, that's a good. That's a good question. Um, I think sometimes I um I question, but no, it's, it's um the reason we wanted to become a cooperative is we wanted an organisation that couldn't be overtaken by another organisation. So we wanted it to be resilient against external market pressures. And if Oracle was to own or, or be a part owner of land or if it was to represent all of the organic and regenerative farmers in Australia, that the farmers themselves were the, the owners, not an external organisation that could do the wrong thing or the right thing. Um I think, unfortunately, Australia's been through a really difficult period for cooperatives. I actually come from Murray Goulburn Town. So, you know, I think it's been a really difficult period because cooperatives in the past, I don't think, have necessarily uh, had the right structures to enable the resilience that cooperatives should have. Um, I think if you look internationally, cooperatives are seen as a really good, strong, resilient business model. And when you look at the history and, and and the case studies of what happened to to Murray Goulburn, I mean, essentially they sold off 30% of their ownership to an external company that then came back and affected, uh, you know, the decisions that the, the cooperative um, were able to make to represent their farmers, i.e. milk price. And... You know, that that shouldn't have happened as a cooperative if it had the, you know, the depth of a cooperative. 
So, unfortunately, in Australia, I think cooperatives are a really new... Um, good cooperatives are almost like a new form of business. And, you know, we've had a really long journey in terms of our formation and trying to find the right sort of people that can work with us to help us to navigate what is a really complex um, mix of different things. So we've got members who are farmers, we've got members who are consumers, and we've got members who are investors. So they're all the same type of member, but they all have a different function. And, yeah, you know, I guess a, a cooperative has that real depth of members feeling like they're part of something. And I feel really proud that we've got members all over Australia that all feel like they're part of Oricoop. I, I find it hard sometimes because we're trying to keep up with all of our members, which is quite challenging when you've got, you know, 200 members in all different ways who are all different sorts of people. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, I think that the, the organisation has a real depth of purpose, which is what we were trying to create. Yeah, so you, you've got a bunch of different sort of member functions there. I mean, a traditional or a normal cooperative might be a food cooperative where the, the customers own and operate the business or a, it could be a farmer's cooperative where the farmers own and operate the business in order to buy inputs cheaply and, and sell their, their produce at a, at a better price or or a medical co-op where it's, again, the customers are sort of owning it to supply their, their, their medical needs. Um, why did you go with a model where you've got more than one sort of stakeholder, I suppose? Well, it's basically called a multi-stakeholder co-op, so that's essentially what it is. And the thing is, I guess what we're trying, you know, the fundamental things that we're trying to achieve with our co-op is to represent the farmers, so for the farmers to get a fair go, and, you know, that being, you know, in their markets um, or in their actual organic best practice, you know, how they're running their farm. So, you know, the farmers are at the centre of what we're trying to do. But what we didn't want to do is only have farmers and then have external investors because what that does is creates a separation between the money and the grower. And we didn't want that to be the case because I've seen some really bad examples where, you know, you've got a, a piece of land that's owned by investors and the investors want their return at the cost of, um, you know, the farm manager or the, um, you know, the, the farmer's own viability. So that's kind of why we wanted it to be the same entity. We did look at having, you know, separate parts of the organisation but feel like it's it's important that it's um, brought together. Um you know, I, we are absolutely passionate about supporting other cooperatives. So it's kind of like if you look at Oracle being a bit like a mothership and we've got little cooperatives emerging in different places, which I think is really exciting. We've got some really good specialist cooperative people that we're working with that help those, you know, those communities. So I feel like we're still doing that at a local level, but obviously at a larger level we've got um, capacity to invest, to, to enable investment into farms and enable, you know, those transition strategies to happen um, while we've got the local farms happening as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Can you just check your mic again? And then, yeah, I'm um, just going through a dodgy spot. So ah, okay, busy. cool. <laughs> 
So, 500 metres of dodgy spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the joys of the highway. We're doing well. You're obviously on a reasonably major road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, I, they, and they make the they make the um, the telephone line really good from Melbourne to the snow. It's funny how they do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, well, I guess farmers, like you were saying, there, they're they're the real critical point in this in this transformation of the soil into the food that we get on our plate and they're currently really being squeezed and ripped off so how did you get that investment money to be more aligned with with the needs of the farmer what, what's well, the difference between the two the oracle yeah. model and the and the traditional investment model um well i think it's it's very different so, you know, we basically have a very, very strong filter to our investors straight up that, you know, we're not investment driven. You know, we have a triple bottom line um, that is about financial, environmental and social. So if they're looking for high returns, i.e. returns above 8% um, in agriculture, it's not, sorry, um, you know, in agriculture, you know, an 8% return is not environmentally sustainable in most systems. You know, if you look at the returns that are being reported by super funds in agriculture, if you read the, the age in a couple of weeks ago, you'll see it says 12.5%. But if you read the fine print, it's actually 5.5% cash return, and the rest of it is capital gain that they're reporting as an annual return. You know, so we're looking at a balanced return you know, that is limited by the ecological limits. So that ranges between 3 and 7% range in, the, in that kind of range. That's what we aim for. Um, so basically the, the, the model is that we've got investors that are looking for, um, you know, a, a, an ecological footprint that has, you know, a, a real return, but it's not a lucrative return. It's not a return that's driven by uh, extraction, and I guess that, that creates an immediate filter. You know, we've had some super funds that we've talked to. Um, one is they find that agriculture is too risky climatically and they won't invest into agriculture. I think everybody should ask their super funds that they should be investing in some type of farmland. Um, and the second is that they um, they see that they're, they're return-driven and they want returns more than 10% generally. Renewable sector is kind of doing really well in sort of 8 to 15%. And so that's what they want from agriculture. And it's just not achievable. Um, you know, some of the best dairy farms across the country are sort of, if they're getting 5 to 8% as a dairy farm, they're doing really, really well. We've got farmers at the moment, not our farmers, but obviously farmers in our area that are getting 1% to 2% return on their, you know, on their farm. Mm, and it's probably out there getting a negative return as well. Oh, absolutely, especially this year because it's, you know, a very difficult year. Grain is extraordinarily expensive. Hay is extraordinarily expensive. Um, and that all just affects the farmer's bottom line. Yeah, well, that goes back to the risk you were saying that the farmer is is, is placed with. and it's, it's an incredible risk that really no one else in society is asked to to do. How does our co-op help to mitigate that sort of personal risk that farmers find themselves in? Um, so we basically, um, you know, work with the farmers on, you know, 
diversifying. So we, we very much are very strong on the diversification side of things, um, as in multiple enterprises and multiple types of crops um, and, and trying to help them to have uh, different markets as well. So we kind of help look at a whole farm system and say, what are the weakest points in that farming system and find out if we can mitigate some of those weaknesses. Um, you know, we look at farms that have been um, organic or run organically for a very long time or, you know, at least a decent amount of time. So we're not looking at converting a farm quickly and then getting it into large-scale agriculture quickly. We, we are not that sort of way inclined. Um, and the other critical part to our whole, you know, farm assessment side of things is we look for farms that have really good managers. You know, so we, we've based our model very much on an, an organisation called Iroquois Valley in, in the US, um, an incredible organisation. They've got $50 million under management, um, you know, 54 farms. Um, they're about to raise another $50 million, And they basically work with only second and third generation farmers and obviously the farmers can have incoming farmers helping them, but the people actually running the farms are, you know, good, experienced managers. And because of the um, the, the cost of land and, and the generational change at the moment, there's actually some really good managers um, that are desperate to have that sort of opportunity um, but not be strangled by the debt of a farm. And, and that's what we're trying to find. So the farms that get on our short list, have that sort of, you know, production history as well as that person that is part of the story. Um, and there might be like the two I see, there might be the, the manager's right-hand man, um, there might be just someone that, um, you know, has wanted to have that opportunity for a long time. Um, but I think that, you know, Australia needs the best farm managers that we can possibly create. And I think that that's our biggest risk, you know, is our... The, we need more farm managers um, than there is at the moment. Yeah, look, we're um, running out of time, so I'm just going to go through this. But a biological farm manager is an amazingly uh, complex <laughs> thing to do. I mean, you're looking at the complexity of the soil and the life above the soil and the, the markets and the, the growing conditions and the seasons and there's ecologies and ecosystems and, and workers and, oh, God, it just gets to be this amazing interwoven mm. complex thing. It's got to be the most complex thing that humans can do, I imagine. <laughs> so I think it is hard and I think also to understand that, I mean, I'm an experienced farmer and you come from a farming fam family, but the thing is it takes you like five years to even get to know a piece of land and mm. get to actually manage that. And so trying to teach an incoming person to be a good biological manager as well as understand the land is a really difficult task. You know, it takes a lot to get that person to understand all those different parts of the, you know, moving path. Yeah, and then I guess if you go around to the other side of the hill, it's all completely different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So say you've got someone who'd really like to get into this or, or you've got, I mean, Actually, let's go back to, to the farmer we were talking about, the existing farm managers who, who might be burdened with a tonne of debt. Could they, for instance, sell their, their good organic land to Oricoop, pay off their debts, and then just become a manager on Oricoop land? Is that the sort of thing you guys could do? 
Yeah, I mean, what we're looking for is retiring farmers. So we've got a lot of retiring farmers and we work with them on a transition plan. So a transition to exiting plan. But they don't have to see even it as an exit. So we've got a farm we're working on in WA at the moment that um, the, the farmer wants to retain probably 50% ownership and we'll, we'll um, raise the, the balance of the 50%. And he actually wants it to be part of his family legacy. So he really wants it to retain the integrity you know, of the farm as it is. Um, and with that farm, for example, the, the biggest issue for that farm is we don't have a manager. You know, So if we can find a... You know, an awesome manager that understands multiple enterprises, understands organic systems. We've got a, a built-in trainer, a built-in mentor as part of that. Hmm. Um, with the farm manager, you know, we want them to buy into ownership. So that so the only way we would sell a farm is to an existing farm manager for them to buy into that farm over time. So obviously we wouldn't want a farm manager to sell everything back. Um, we could potentially look at buying into the debt portion of it, but we actually would really like our farm managers to retain some type of equity um, just because it gives them skin in the game. It gives them that real sense of their own destiny. Mm, yeah, I like that. That's good. That's good. So I guess you could have, say, Oricoop's got a piece of land. It needs a new manager because the old one's moved on. You could get a new farmer who's well-educated or, or one who's been working on some bit of land to come into that and eventually, with the profits they're making out of the enterprise, they'll buy into the land itself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, what we get them to do is to buy the movable things first. So, oh, like nice. on a dairy or on in, in some areas, you get them to buy machinery or the herd or stock first. Um, but once your manager has achieved that, then obviously we would love them to be able to buy in land, usually within the five to ten year period. Mm. So the the manager's owning up to 50% of it and, and the co-op itself is owning the rest. And what's the purpose of the co-op maintaining an ownership? Yeah, so the co-op doesn't own the rest of the 50%, just to be clear. So we, we have investor shares available to our members. So to invest, you know, retail investors can invest up to, um, can invest from $1,000. And then um, beyond our members, we also co- uh, create a co-investment structure with wholesale investors. So if a wholesale investor wants to invest across four different farms, they can do that through this mechanism. So we basically become a co-investor with wholesale investors with the incoming manager or the retiring farmer. Yeah, right. So the ownership split at least three ways. The, the co-op has a, a small portion of the ownership, the manager has a, a portion, and the investors have a portion. Yeah, and then we basically uh, are essentially like an asset manager. So Oracoop has an asset management part of what we do, and we obviously, you know, set up the KPIs and, and assist and manage that farm on an ongoing basis. What's a and KPI? And that's on behalf of uh, key performance indicators. So basically, to say, this is what we want the farm to look like. This is what we want, you know, it to achieve in the year and so that could be about financial goals it could be about carbon measures uh, it could be about what it's producing and so basically to set up the parameters of success of that farm because every farm has to have a you know a, a measure of what does a successful year look like or what does an average year look like and so we basically set that up with the um, 
farm in consultation with our um, consultants that work with each of the farm managers. And and that's really to give the insur- in um, the, the co-investors peace of mind. You know, because the thing is, you can invest in a farm, but it doesn't mean that it's going to get run properly. And that's the, the biggest, um, one of the biggest issues with investing into farmland is how do you make sure the manager is going to do the right thing by the investors? Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, that, that's pretty cool. And and is there a protection for all these investors by having the the the, the co-op involved? Well, I think you know, like if you look at the success of leasing, buying a, a piece of land and leasing it out, um, you'll know that that's not a very successful model. Um, you know, we I mean, obviously, only time will tell. You know, we can't say, oh, yes, we're guaranteed to be successful. You know, we believe that we've got, you know, mechanisms in place in terms of those measures, um, relationships with the managers. Um, We've also got the retiring farmers as one of the mentors as well. Um, You know, we think that that's a a recipe for a good chance of success, um, you know, to be able to, you know, continue that farm in its production. Um, You know, I think farming is not an easy task. You know, it's not an easy... um, a career, you know, either to get into or to be successful at. You know, like we've got farmers at the moment that have been, you know, on the land for 30 years. I was with um, Charlie Lovick the other day. He's a very old stockman. He was actually one of the three horsemen on Manfred Snow River. You know, a man that I respect immensely, just have utmost respect for the man. And, you know, I met him, you know, in Mansfield, obviously we care the same town. And, you know, and I said, how are you? And he said, this is really tough. This is really tough. He said, this has just about got me to the bone. You know, and you just think, man, these are like 50-year cattlemen. These are like men that have seen bushfires and droughts and all of that before, and yet they are really doing it tough. You know, so I think we need to see that we need a new generation of people that are looking at things going, it hasn't been working for us for the last 20 years. We need to find a new way. To, um, you know, to, to define a successful enterprise. Um, mm. And that's why I think regenerative and organic agriculture has a massive part of this next step. Yeah, so I guess look into the future. We've got climate change and, and temperatures are going to be getting hotter and the weather's going to be weirder. Like I think Hey Marie Lovins calls it global weirding. Um, yeah. How How is a... a, a how is the whole farming sector going to cope with that? Because things are going to change. Well, I think um, Andre Liu, um, he's like a, he's been the president of iFoam. He's now the president of an organisation called Regeneration International. He's an Australian guy, lives in the Daintree. You know, he said it's not just the hotter and the colder, it's that the rain is at different times. You know, and I think the whole... Uh, farming system, the whole growing system is changing. So it's, it's not just hotter and it's not just colder. It's that, you know, like right now we're, you know, waiting for the rains to come. The rains are meant to be here by now. They haven't arrived. How do you put crops in when you haven't had rain? You know, so the whole climatically climatic change is what is actually affecting farmers. Um you used to be able to go grow crops at certain times of the year, and now that is all, you know, all different. So, you know, that's why mixed enterprises have such a place in that risky environment because if it's not one crop, it could be another. 
Um, but yeah, I think farmers need a lot of support to, you know, work out what is working in different areas. Mm. And how hot do you reckon it can get before the the, the food crops that we have? Because they're they're a lot less resilient than their wild uh, original sort of cousins were back in the day before domestication. How hot do you reckon it can get before we just simply can't grow these damn things anymore? Well, I mean, if you look at Mordura, we've got a really good organic grower up at um, yeah, up in the Mordura area, and I was talking to him this this. Um, it was just the beginning of January or middle of January, oh, yeah, and they yeah, just hot spell. yeah, yeah, really hot spell, and they just received their first um, delivery of brassicas. So obviously, you put brassicas in late January, um, you know, for your first autumn crops that are coming off kind of now. And it was 46 degrees, I think, for eight days or 45 <laughs> degrees for, like, eight days. And he's like, they literally put the centre pivot on and they just kept it going. It just kept going round and round and round and round because they they couldn't keep them. They couldn't keep them in the cool rooms. They would have died. Um, you know, and you look at it and just go, this is just bizarre. We're planting brassicas in 45-degree heat and trying to keep them alive, mm. you know. So I, I think... Um, some areas, unfortunately, are not going to grow what they have always grown. Um, there's been some really good studies by the Victorian government, and I think some other governments are looking at doing it, where they're actually looking at the temperature changes and what that is going to do for certain crops in certain areas. You know, because, you know, just because, like, the, the hailstorms and the extreme weather events that's happened in the northern rivers, um, you know, they're saying that they're just going to increase. So what they need to do is basically mitigate against that, you know, not just say, oh, that was just a once-off and it's not going to happen again. Yeah, yeah. Now, nah, look, I mean, agriculture, it's such a key thing. It's such a pivotal thing. It's, it's, it's one of our most basic needs would die without that stuff. And, and it, it's going to be affected by what's coming because of the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. But at the same yeah. time, changing the way we do it can be a major drawdown of that carbon and actually become the solution as well. It, it's an amazing thing, agriculture. Yeah. It's such a big opportunity. And I guess your, your co-op is providing a way for people with money, with investment money, to actually contribute to that conversion on a large scale. Yeah, and I think, you know, for us it's about people putting their money where it really matters. So it's not just about farmland, but it's about saying, thinking about where you invest your money. You know, invest your money in a member-owned bank. Invest your money in renewable energy or, or you know, well-managed farmland. You know, so you're investing in things that make the world better, not make it worse. And I think with Oracle, what we're trying to do is, I guess, educate people about what better looks like, you know, because better is not always best. It's just, it's a, it's a journey towards better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like even the way we live, I think, you know, if people start to grow more of their own food, if they start to, you know, stop buying imported vegetables that are out of season, even if you really want strawberries in winter, they're maybe not so good for your body to be buying them when they're fully imported from America or for red grapes or, you know, those kind of things that have really high few, um, food miles, they may not actually be the best thing for the environment. Yeah, look, there's so much more we could talk about, like the uh, the community-owned farms that you guys are supporting and stuff, but I'm afraid we're pretty much out of time. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd really like to add before we wind up? 
No, no, it's been great. I um, appreciate your company on um, my two-hour trip home, so um, <laughs> it's been great. And if anyone's got any questions, they can jump on the website. Um, they can become a member easily just online. It's $100 one-off to become a member, then they can be part of our internship of things or just be part of Oracob more generally. Um, so we're really excited to be able to have different communities in different areas. Um, so we appreciate the support, Scotty. It's been great to um, share it with you. No worries. And what is that website? Uh, it's just organicinvestmentcooperative.com.au. Sorry, organicinvestment cooperative.com.au No worries, you're just breaking up there Okay, Carolyn Sugate from Oricoop, thank you very much for joining us Beautiful, thanks Scotty Good on you, you're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 on Behind the Lines This interview was done in the studios of Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it Please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click support 2XX, and then donate, subscribe, volunteer, or sponsor us. Thanks.